mystery, suspense, and thriller authors who are writing today. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. And before we get started, I'd like to remind you to please like the Crime Cafe Facebook page, as well as if you're listening on iTunes, to please leave a review of this podcast. Anything you can do on social media to help spread the word about the podcast would be greatly appreciated. In addition to that, we have a website, crimecafe.net, where if you click on the words Crime Cafe, it'll take you to a page where you can see all of the interviews and buy a 99 cent story package. All of the season one author interviews, I'm sorry, interviewees <laughs> have contributed stories to the story package and it's only 99 cents, which is a real deal. So having said that, I'm going to introduce now a very good friend, former uh, writers group member, fellow sister in crime and excellent writer, Sasser Hill. Sasser, it's wonderful. I'm so happy to have you on the program today. Good morning, Debbie. It is so great to see you. I can't, we are sitting here live looking at each other and it's, it's, it's great. Um, it's totally uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. So, where the wonders of technology. <laughs> um, I first got to know your work while you were writing the Nikki Luttrell mystery series. Please um, tell us more about that series. Uh, Nikki is such a great character, a female jockey. She's so tough. And I'd like to know more about how you developed her as a character and why you started that series. Um, I started the series because, you know, they say write what you know. And I knew more about thoroughbred horse racing and riding with thoroughbred race horses than, than the average person, a lot more. Um, so, I, and it's interesting that you would bring that the subject of how she came to be because I'm currently writing a prequel to the Nikki Latrell series, which will be about her childhood or teenagerhood, if you will, and how she um, came to run away from Baltimore and finally wind up at Pimlico Racetrack and, and the tough, tough times that she had to make it as a jockey. So it'll be fun to have her, the earlier part of her life, revealed. I'm looking forward to that. I definitely want to read that. Um, you uh, have had a history with breeding and racing horses, correct? Yes, very much so. Please tell us about your experiences. Well, in 1982, way, way back, I got a mare to keep, I wanted to get a mare to keep my riding horse company. And of course, I wound up getting this really nice well-bred racehorse mare out of an auction. And um, she was already in foal when I bought her. And that was the beginning of my career as a as a horse breeder. And I wound up with as many as two or three mares at a time and bred 17 foals and um, broke many of them myself on the farm when I was younger and could ride. And ended up being an owner and um, running the horses at Pimlico Racetrack in Baltimore, Laurel Racetrack in Maryland, Charlestown in West Virginia, Delaware Park up in um, Delaware, and it was it was a heck of a it was a heck of a ride. It was a real roller coaster. There were highs and lows that you, you wouldn't believe. And uh, are you still involved in uh, horse breeding and racing? 
No, no. I um, I got out of the business um, when both the stock market and the racehorse market uh, in Maryland in 2008, everything crashed horribly, and I, I had to get out. And so I sold the farm and, and the horses and moved to Aiken, South Carolina, where I've been very, very happy. I'm, I love living here, so it's all worked out. Well, that's wonderful. Um... Nikki Luttrell, without getting into too many specifics, can you tell us a little bit about her character and why she's so tough? Well, she's tough because um, when Nikki was 13, her mother died and uh, left her in the hands of a pedophile stepfather. Um, and she, her mother was very, very poor and um, ended up hanging out with this roofer so that they could get a new roof on their row house in Baltimore. And he turned out to be a very, very bad person. And when Nikki's mother died, she had to literally run out of the house, crawl out a window late at night, get down the fire escape and run into the streets of Baltimore to get away from this man. And what happened to her after that is the story I'm, I'm currently writing. So she was, of course, very tough. Um, but she's an interesting combination because when her mother was alive, her mother sent her up to, um, to her mother was actually a cook at the Potter School, which was a very prissy, fussy school for very wealthy young ladies. And they were the kind of school that had stables and riding and gave riding lessons to the girls. So um, Nikki's mother managed to get Nikki, if Nikki would do chores, she was allowed to take lessons at the school. And so she learned to mimic the voices of these very prissy upper crust girls and to mimic their behavior and their affectations. So she's a very interesting mix of the streets of Baltimore tough, and she also knows how to talk like a prissy young lady. That is very interesting. Um, I didn't know that about her character. You had mentioned at one point that, uh, well, Tell, tell us how she got, got involved with horse racing and made that her career. Well, she um, was always horse crazy, as so many young gals are. And before her mother died, her mother would take her to Pimlico to watch the horses run. And the first time she went, she was just enraptured when she saw her first thoroughbred racehorse. She'd never seen anything so beautiful. And then after that, she ended up learning how to ride at the Potter School. So when she ran away, she ran to Pimlico because it was the one place where she'd been happy and felt safe with her mother, and she knew how to ride. And, of course, it's not going to be easy for her to allow anybody to put her up on a racehorse or to trust her or to care about her. So she's going to have to fight and show her ability and, and stamina and courage to, to make a life for herself in horse racing. Indeed. Um, that... Uh... That story, her backstory is fascinating. Um, it really is intriguing, and, and I can't wait to read the prequel that you're working on. Um, I also saw that you wrote a book about the true stories of your life as a breeder and jockey. Would you be willing to share an interesting anecdote from that time? Well, uh, one of the stories in uh, that um it's like an anthology. It's called Rare Highs and Killer Lows, which is what being a racehorse owner is like. You have very rare, rarefied, thin air highs, and you have horrible crashing lows. And um, as an example, I had a racehorse that I bred, pulled out of her mother when she was a baby, um, broke her myself, galloped her on the farm, sent her to the track, 
Her name was Honors Quest, and somehow, one day, somehow, some way, we've never really known for sure, she managed to slice her tongue in half, and she almost died. And I went up to see her that day, and she was lying down in the stall. She wouldn't get up. Blood was dribbling out of her mouth. This is one of the most horrible things I've ever been through in my life. But she survived, and my trainer put a bitless bridle, bridle, which is called a hackamore. It doesn't have a bit in it. We eventually we realized we could put that on her. And he got on her rotor, and she was still racing fit because it had only been about a week and a half. And then within three or four weeks, her tongue had healed to the point where we could actually put a bit in her mouth. It didn't hurt her at all. And we ran her at Pimlico, and she won. It was incredible. She won. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of the highest moments of my life. So that's what I mean about rare highs and pressure lows. Man, that sounds emotionally draining almost. It's it's a tough roller coaster ride. And that's one of the reasons I'm glad I'm out of the business because um, it's, you know, one of the major trainers who was talking to the news one day said that, you know, horse racing will make anyone humble. It will humble anyone. My gosh, I would get so attached to the animals. I would feel, I don't know, <laughs> I think it would be too much for me. It, it, it's it's really hard, and um, but you know, I mean, you take care of them and you love them, and, and usually the bad things like that don't happen. It's just that when they do, they're so shocking and unexpected that it's tough. Mm. Yes. Um, tell us a little about the horse racing industry. Is it as tough as you make it sound in your books? Um, people in horse racing are pretty tough. Um, it's a tough game. I mean, jockeys, think of the jockey, you know, he's, he's steering a, a thousand pound animal, 30 miles an hour, and he's just a little guy. I mean, they have to be very brave and, and they can go down, they can get hurt, but they always come back. I've never seen anything like it. They're wonderful athletes. The horses, to me, are the most beautiful, strongest athletes in the world. Um, because it's, there's so much money, because of the gambling, so much money involved, there is a huge margin for low lives and, and crime. And that's what my, um, I'm so happy to be writing a new series um, for St. Martin's book, Minotaur Books from St. Martin's about um, an agent for a real life agency called the Thoroughbred Racing Protective Bureau. It's a real agency that exists in the U.S. And um, when I decided to do a series about an agent, her name is Fia McKee, who works for the Bureau, um, I drove up to Northern um, Maryland and met with the then president and uh, vice president and interviewed with them for a couple hours. And, and they actually read my first novel, the McKee novel, I sent it to them and they read it. And one of the best emails I ever had was from the, the head of the TRPB who'd read the novel and said, because I wanted him to read it, make sure there were no mistakes. And I wasn't putting anything there that they would say, oh my God, that would never happen. That's ridiculous. He just wrote me back a one-liner. He said, you're good to go. And I was just, the best one-liner I've ever had in my life. So, so the book is going to come out in 2017, and I'm very excited about it. That's fantastic. Um, I want to congratulate you on getting your contract with St. Martin's. Have um, you enjoyed working with them so far? I'm still thrilled. I mean, I'm absolutely thrilled, and I still sometimes have to pinch myself. And right now I have the completed... Um, edited, approved manuscript of the first Fia McKee novel, which is called Flamingo Road. It's been sitting on the dining table with the approval letter from St. Martin's for about two weeks now. I can't move it. Every time I sit down for dinner, 
there it is. And my husband and I look at it and we just start grinning because it's just such a wonderful, great thing. You know, when you've been a small time person all your life to finally hit big time, and now that doesn't mean that I'll do well, but I have, I have good hopes. And I was told by somebody who knows the main editor of St. Martin's, um, who my editor works for, that they have high hopes for the novel, for the series, which was really great to hear. So I'm hopeful. That's fantastic. And those of us in, who know you and have worked with you are very proud of you and happy for you. Believe me, Thank you me. deserve this. <laughs> Thank you. I, I know you are. You, you and I have been through a lot together. Oh, yes. So um, I, I'm just honestly thrilled for you. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Thea McKee. How did she become uh, the person that she is? Thea McKee, um, her father was a trainer at Pimlico. Um, and when she was fairly young, um, a teenager, he, he was murdered and the murder was never solved. Um, and that left a lot of anger in her and um, that his death was never resolved um, and left a, a big burning flame inside of her. And she became um, a police officer in Baltimore. In fact, the first book opens with her. Um, and in Baltimore, they travel single. They don't do two police officers in a car. They travel alone to kind of spread the law a little farther in those crime-ridden streets of Baltimore. So she's driving in a cruiser in the beginning of the first novel. She's still a cop, but she ends up becoming, um, which I won't spoil the story for you, um, mm -hmm. she ends up becoming uh, an agent for the Thoroughbred Racing Protective Bureau. But because her father was killed and because it wasn't resolved, she has this anger and it fuels her but it's also something she has to be very careful about um, and that she doesn't go over the limit. Um, so she's walking a tightrope, an emotional tightrope in, in, in her life. Very interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Uh, Thea McKee is a person who is, I guess, confined to a certain extent now that she's a law enforcement officer as opposed to Nikki Luttrell, more like an amateur sleuth. Um, do you find that you have to know more about police procedure and um, that that's more confining than working with the, uh, the Nikki Luttrell? It's harder work because you mm -hmm. want to be accurate. It's not necessarily more confining. You just have to learn what you can and can't do. Um, for instance, um, Tara PB agents are not supposed to carry a gun while on the job, but Thea has a gun and she doesn't carry it with her, but she keeps it close by. And when I sent the novel to the people at the TRPB, they had no problem with that. It seemed perfectly reasonable to them that an agent who had been a police officer would want to have a gun at hand because she, having been worked the streets of Baltimore, she understands um, how dangerous life can be. So. Mm -hmm. Um, but she has to be careful, and sometimes her new boss will, like gets mad at her because she oversteps her bounds, and uh, she gets nervous because she doesn't want to lose her job. She, she can't afford to lose her job. So I have to always keep that in mind. And not only that, but everything she does, it has to be reasonable. It has to be customary and reasonable. Um, I don't want to write, you know, science fiction. That's not you don't want to make her the dirty hairy of uh, force enforcement, but at the same time, she has that anger that kind of spurs her on. She can be. And sometimes, of course, 
she is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. I like that. Um, well, I'm looking forward to that as well. And um, you've also written a Sherlock Holmes mystery. How did that come about? Oh, that came about through my um, previous publisher, Wildside Press, John Betancourt, who runs um, that publishing company, um, had had some of us uh, listen to those little pastiches, those little old-time 1930s radio stories. And there was one that I listened to that was a, a Sherlock Holmes story. They were all Sherlock Holmes stories. And I adapted it and rewrote it and turned it into a short story. Um, and it was published by Sherlock Holmes Mystery Magazine, which was kind of fun. I, I enjoyed doing it. It was a lot of fun. And it's a cute story. It's, uh, I, it's, I think people enjoy it. That's fantastic. So this was a previously uh, done radio show? Exactly. That you turned into a... Short story. Short story. That's mm -hmm. fantastic. What fun. It was fun. It was a lot of work, though. I mean, because it's many, many words, and you have to listen and kind of type down whatever you think is, is appropriate to what you're going to do. There's no written copy. There's only radio um, audios to listen to. So that made it harder, but, but more interesting, and also it made me write a fresher story than if I had seen the printed words. Were you able to do that because uh, Sherlock Holmes' work is in the public domain now, or how does that work? You know, you know, I honestly don't know, but I, I know that everybody was doing it, and it didn't seem to be a problem. I think he is in the public domain, and that, that and these pastiches are so old that they are also in the public domain. Hmm. Fantastic. So there you go. Now you can write a Sherlock Holmes mystery. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, then. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, finish up? The only thing that I would like to say to other aspiring writers is the best advice that I ever got was from uh, a lady named Noreen Wald, who was a wonderful teacher and instructor, and she still teaches. I think she's down in Sarasota, Florida. And she looked at me one day when I was working on my first Nicola Trail book, and she put her arms on the table, and she looked me in the eye, and she said, keep going. When I was complaining about, I don't know, I'll ever finish. She said, keep going. And that's my mantra now. Whenever I feel like I'm slowing down or I might not be able to do it, I just think, keep going. And I do. And it's, it's, it's a good mantra. I know the feeling. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sasser. I appreciate your being on today. Me too. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure, believe me. Okay. And, um, in conclusion, I'd just like to say, remember, please, to like our Facebook page and to uh, leave a review if you're listening to us on iTunes. And as I said, I have a uh, season one story package, a collection of all the stories from um, the people interviewed here at Crime Cafe for only 99 cents, which you can buy from the website crimecafe.net and click on Crime Cafe to get there. And it's a real deal, believe me, there are some fantastic stories in there. And uh, on that note, thank you so much for listening and see you in a couple of weeks.